0: everybody, and welcome to Terrifying Questions and How Not to be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast. Uh, I'm Eric Kaplan. I've got a PhD in philosophy, and
1: I often work as a television writer, but not now because I'm on strike. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I work on things like existentialism and phenomenology and hermeneutics, and I wonder about questions like uh, why is there anything and what is truth. And you are someone listening to this podcast.
0: And I'm going to just jump in and say, our question today is, are there monsters among us? And I'm amazed now that I think of it, that we started a philosophy podcast called Terrifying Questions, and it took us over 20 episodes to get to monsters. <laughs> it was staring us in the face. Monsters are terrifying. Why aren't we if talking anything, about monsters? Um, If not monsters, what? If not yeah, monsters, exactly. what? Um, Now, I just want to start off... Like, I'm so interested in monsters. I have been since I was a little kid. Um, oh, monsters are interesting. There's a lot of different kinds of monsters. I was just going to say, what is a monster? Well, yeah. I feel like an extensive definition. Like, a vampire, that's a monster. Yeah. A
1: werewolf, that's a monster. Uh-huh. A zombie, that's a monster. Yeah. Is a serial killer a monster? Well, it's interesting. The first ones you picked out are paradigm examples, and it's interesting to note that they don't exist. So uh, one question I had going into this is are I mean taken literally we don't have to stick with the literal notion but literally and traditionally they're mythical or fictional things. So in a way the answer is of course there aren't any monsters among us because they don't exist but we don't want to stick with that. But that is the that is the uh, it, going back to the original meaning of the word as I understand it it was like a divine warning. Or a, a divine or a warning like a displeasure of the gods. Is it some indication of something bad? Uh, but it comes from mythical oh Well,
0: thinking. I think, uh, let me just say, that was awfully nice of the gods to let us know by creating a werewolf <laughs> that we were doing something wrong rather than yeah, just yeah. holding it in. Um, yeah. But, so uh, here's what I will say about the vampire, the werewolf, and the zombie. Uh-huh. That these are mythological or fictional expressions of fears we have of at least other people yeah and here and i believe they've they in a sense um they are a sign of a certain class anxiety Mm. um Mm. a vampire is a parasitic member of the upper classes Mm. who's very sophisticated and lives off of our blood it's also not a coincidence that it's a popular anti-Semitic trope. We can talk about that later. Um, A werewolf is a paradigmatic example of a middle-class guy Hmm. who's trying to take care of his family and do his job, but he's got occasional uh, anti-social desires that overwhelm him. Ah. And a zombie is an example of the proletarian (laughs) who has been beaten down to only existing for the sake of the most rudimentary survival and kill or be killed. And I think these are three different things that we are scared of about other people. We're scared that they might be uh, laughingly leeching off of us, hurting us for their own decadent pleasure. We're afraid that they um, are just going to lose it and kill us. Uh, And we're afraid that they're mindlessly out for their own survival and will kill us or hurt us. So I think monsters are three different terrifying ways that people can appear to us.
1: Wow. So that's interesting. Those class distinctions may be fairly modern, but there are monsters in antiquity. And I wonder what we want to say about those. I think a lot of them are misogynistic figures like Medusa, Medusa. And the, the Gorgon sisters, those are all kind of projections of misogynistic fear, terror of women, um, which is so, so throughout ancient okay, literature. So yeah.
0: Both of us at this point, or, or I, I made this move and you followed suit, saying that there's various things that we can be terrified about other people. And in a sense, I think we're doing a Kantian-Copernican uh, revolution on the concept of monsters and mm-hmm. saying that monsters don't exist but we sometimes view other people as monsters and that's interesting yeah now some of the audience may not go along with that they might be like what about the sociopath is a sociopath not simply a monster uh-huh. or what about the person who has been infected i mean we don't have a a zombie plague for real the closest thing we have is rabies which is pretty terrifying but what about the person who has some sort of organic problem I mean, I guess maybe the sociopath and the the infected person are the same thing. They're a person who has been affected either by their genes or by their
1: environment to become an enemy of the human race. Yeah. I Here's what I think. I think yes. that it's important that the paradigm cases are fictional or mythical because to see something literally as a monster is to see it as imbued with meaning. There's a portent. It's a warning. It foretells the future, or it's a, it can be a reminder of something. Um, oh, I don't agree with that. I think if it's terrifying and inimical, that's plenty. Well, but I think to call it a monster— is to try to evoke a kind of significance which is comforting. See, I think this is a defensive reaction. Oh, interesting. So there's something horrifying, and then you want to give it meaning. This is the gods are angry. This is a warning. This is an omen. And I think the really terrifying things about, like, serial killers is how little meaning there is in what they do or what they're thinking or what happens. I mean, that's, to my mind, the really horrifying thing about those terrible acts of violence is that they are so drained of meaning that they're deeply depressing. Uh, I I made the mistake of watching a few documentaries about, like, I think it was the Hillside Strangler. Uh, There was one documentary where, to my shock and surprise, they had photographs from the crime scenes, which I was really not interested in seeing, and really affected me in ways I was not prepared for. Because when you see a chair tipped over or a bloody sock or something, I won't go into details, it reminds you of the sheer meaninglessness of what happened. And that's actually much more upsetting than the idea of the Gorgon or the Hydra's head or any of these mythical creatures. I think exercising our imagination is a way of protecting us from the real horror. That's I maybe should have said this at the end of the episode, but that's my that's what I think about monsters. Well, I want to push back a little because
0: I was interested in asking a slightly different question. Yeah and the question that i was asking was are people for example serial killers yeah 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 so alien yeah good from the human race that the attempt to empathize with them is foolish they must simply be fought that was kind of the question that was prompting my question.
1: I mean I understood that actually. So in a way this has been I understood this to be a kind of like a little digression on the literal meaning of monster just to put it in okay. context but so I know you're using you're using the word monster in a metaphorical way. But I'm intrigued by the Okay. I once
0: read a book by Martin Buber which I liked a lot. Called I and thou. Right. It means I and you, really. We just don't have a first person, second person informal. singular in regular
1: English anymore. Well, we so, have the... I and you. We don't have the informal as opposed to the right. formal. Yeah. So he
0: said "There's there are two relationships we have to things in life. I, it, and I, you. Yeah. And it struck me that he was right. And that made me... Th- uncomfortable whenever people started to say, there's a gene for sociopathy. Ah. There's a gene for sociopathy. There are some people out there who just, they're no damn good. They don't have the ability to empathize. They don't care. Don't waste your time trying to care about them or understand them. Because I thought, no, that's an attitude you might want to take towards certain people because they're scary or they're putting you and your loved ones in danger And I think you know we sometimes have the same attitude towards um, the extremely rich Mm -hmm. in our society Mm -hmm. who seem to be doing a lot of damage to the climate and to us and don't care. Yeah. Um. But I feel like there's the I it attitude which you might want to employ, but there's always the I you attitude as well. Yeah. And you could always look at someone and say that person likes. Collecting human fingers and making designs <laughs> out of them in his basement, yeah. Um, and that's uh, certainly bad. Yeah. But I get it. Uh, I understand why get, i might yeah, what, sure. What do you get about I mean, that? Yeah. What do I get about it? Yeah. Well, I like making designs. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I like. Um, I'm often threatened by other people, and I would like to be able to not be threatened by them. And what better way to not be threatened by them oh, than I to see. kill them and make designs out of their fingers? I see. Wow. Um, okay. I can get a boost of of exhilaration by breaking the rules yeah um, when I break the rules sometimes I feel guilty but sometimes I feel an intoxicating sense of freedom I see um yeah sometimes I do things that are weird and I just don't care and other people look at me and they think they're I'm weird and I'm like I don't care I'm weird uh-huh. leave, leave me be yeah. so although I I, I mean just to, I hesitate to inform you I mean. I don't hesitate to like. I want to let you know and the listeners know. I don't do this. No, of course, I have course, never, of I have never killed anyone or made designs out of their I fingers. But I feel like so. I understand it. Yeah, I, see. I, I wow. can, I can take the IU attitude towards the serial killer, and I fear the notion that we must always look at human divergence as something that needs to be kind of controlled through the language of. Uh, control and medical diagnosis
1: so do you accept this who is it said uh i am human so nothing human is alien to me where does that come from yeah terence terence an ancient roman comedy writer i see there's something admirable about that i agree with you that even with the extreme psychopath and the violent psychopath it's a person we're talking about. And so you can have a conversation with this person. You can talk about the weather with this person. So it can't be literally right that they're non-human or subhuman or that you could switch off the person uh, switch and regard them as just machines or sharks. I mean, these are the kinds of things we're tempted to say. This person's a monster. We mean they're a killing machine. They're like a shark. And the person qualities are kind of an illusion.
0: Now, let me ask you a... A science fiction question, okay. and I know philosophers go in a lot of directions on this. Yeah, but supposing we got a grant from the National Science Institute to take the human part of the brain that allows talking mm-hmm. and graft it onto the brain of a shark.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. If a shark could talk, and then what would it say? Yeah,
0: yeah. And then the shark says, "Taylor and Eric." Mm. Would you please climb into my tank so we can discuss this further? And we're, we say to the guy, the, the marine biologist, Well, we'd like to discuss this with the shark. And he says, No, no, no. Don't do that. It just wants to eat you. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, good. Would this being the shark, the talking shark, mm-hmm. that's plausible. There's no philosophical reason to believe. And the talking shark, the IU attitude of Boober, would seem to me to be naive and foolish don't talk to the shark we all know what sharks want they just want to eat stuff that's all they do they are eating machines designed by
1: evolution and we're supposing that Um, the that the marine biologist is right right that i'm saying
0: is there anything do philosophers have any reason to believe that the marine biologist
1: is wrong that there couldn't be a talking shark. I see. It's hard to know what to say about... This is the problem with science fiction examples, is that... Because I've heard some philosophers who say
0: that's impossible. And the argument is, as best as I can reconstruct it, for you to talk, you must be willing to give reasons for what you say. And if you give reasons for what you say, you must be part of a community of people who give and take reasons. And therefore, you will never be... A mindless killing machine who can talk I think this is nonsense yeah I think this is wishful thinking and it's not true but I know philosophers who think it is true they say as soon as you can talk
1: you're part of the community of givers and takers of reasons well I don't it may be that to be competent with language use of a certain kind you have to be competent with giving reasons and asking for reasons I don't see any inference from that that you have to be moral I mean, I think the mistake that people make is from a certain kind of linguistic rationality to morality, because I'm I'm more sympathetic with the sentimentalists or who said, you know, feelings or emotions are at the bottom of our moral motivations. And if you suppose the shark doesn't have any feelings of compassion or sympathy or empathy, but can speak in sentences and think in a kind of minimally rational way. I don't see any reason to think it's not just a killing machine. So I guess I'm agreeing with you. you agree with me. The shark in my story yeah. can use reasons. He can You're say, right. climb
0: fine. into my
1: tank. So we can discuss this like further. He
0: knows, he knows that the only way for him to eat us Other than that movie where the sharks got out of the tank But that was a silly movie Um, uh, The only way for
1: him to eat us is for us to get into the tank So he can give reasons It's strategic Um, rationality, yeah You know what, let's take a quick break And we'll come back to this uh, question about the killer shark uh, Who speaks maybe persuasively The persuasive shark Yeah Okay, that was a good break and we're coming back uh, to this theme of uh, this kind of science fiction thought experiment, which I'm going along with. I'm not a big fan of them in philosophy, but I'm going along with this one just to say, sure, there can be this shark well, who's Well here's the uh, reason why rational, I brought it up. But a uh, killing machine, basically,
0: yeah. Okay. So I didn't bring I didn't bring it up because I think this is likely
1: Sure, of course. But of course. If it's
0: conceptually possible, yeah. then could it be that a certain percentage of the population are
1: talking sharks? Well, yeah. I want to go a little bit backwards to yes. what you were saying about that you can understand the psychopath, and I hear what you're saying. I'm agreeing with you that the boober, <laughs> the boober thesis is right. This is a you. You will find yourself speaking to the psychopath and saying you, and you will know that it's not a mannequin or a robot or a talking machine. That's just there's no mind there or anything like that. Of course, it's a person. But I have a slightly different kind of gut feeling about the killer uh, psychopath who chops people up and apparently without any kind of feeling about it. I mean, this book you recommended well, in to me. my example, he likes to make
0: designs out of their fingers. Yeah, okay,
1: fine. Yeah, I didn't yeah. want to uh, rehash that, but okay. Yeah, yeah he yep. makes designs out of their okay. fingers. <laughs> so, um, which
0: he possibly sells on psychopath Etsy,
1: if that exists. Okay. <laughs> Just trying to make a living. Um, So this book you recommended to me maybe a couple of years ago now that I read that's really quite entertaining and horrifying and entertaining at the same time by John Ronson called The Psychopath Test. Mm -hmm. There's a story that really stayed in my mind. He talks to quite a few psychopaths and cites the literature and the so-called experts about psychopathy. Mm -hmm. And one of them who was in some kind of institute, I didn't have time to look up the details again, I'm afraid, but it's not a high-security, maximum-security prison, even though he had killed some people. But they let them out into some courtyard, and he managed to sort of escape or get out to have just enough opportunity to kill somebody else, again— and when asked why he did it, he said he was curious. He wanted to know what it was like to kill somebody. And they that's a little frightening to me already. sends a chill down my spine. I'm just mm-hmm. out of sheer curiosity, what's it like to kill somebody? That's why he did it. And when somebody said, well, but you had already killed people. Uh, you know, that's why you're in here. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but that was a long time ago. Like he had just forgotten and he wanted to be reminded. Now, so my gut reaction to that is this is something I feel like at some level... I feel as if I don't understand it. It doesn't make any well, sense. Well, you're a curious person, up to a point. Have you ever wanted to know what it feels like to go hang gliding? Um, you know, to be honest, not really. <laughs> well, is there anything?
0: Is there anything that you're curious to know what it feels like? Sure, of
1: course, of course. There's plenty of things. Well, give yeah, give but, an example that you don't feel ashamed to share with others. <laughs> well, let's see. I well, there's a. Let me put it this way: I was much more adventurous, adventuresome or adventurous.
0: Those are two different things, Have,
1: are they? What's the difference? I don't know. I don't know either. Okay, so I had more adventure in me when I was younger, and I rode motorcycles, and I skied, and I did a whole lot of things which were really super fun and exhilarating. And maybe I got my fill of a lot of that early on, so I kind of know what it's like to go fast and like to do move. You, but and did so you ever so, like? But were you ever curious, like, what would it be
0: like to go out on a date? With a woman who's six foot eight, <laughs>
1: it hadn't ever occurred to me. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so, but let me let me finish the thought by yeah. saying I do have this feeling of like I haven't ridden a motorcycle since I was about fourteen or something, and I do sometimes now think I wonder what it would be like to get on a. Uh, you know, a powerful motorcycle and zoom down Riverside Drive so yeah of course actually I've got a lot of that uh, so I understand curiosity as soon as it gets to the point of like curiosity about killing somebody I run into a wall and now I don't want to what about fighting a duel where you take a
0: shot at him and he takes a shot at you and both of you run the risk of death but at the end of it you might both be alive. In fact, you probably will be. No, but I do not sometimes... <laughs> not interested.
1: But, but here's, an, here's another pass, thing. I'm kind of... Passing a duel. <laughs> I'm kind of... you owe me satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I do sometimes think, and this is not something I actually want to do because I don't, I don't want to get my brain clobbered, but I'm kind of fascinated no. by boxing. Uh, the art of it and the strategy and the subtlety and um, watching really great boxers, watching Muhammad Ali. Oh,
0: the next time you come out here... yeah. I used to take boxing Did lessons you? from Ricky Kiles oh. for several years. He's he's got a bunch of belts. Um, and we'll go and we'll box. Oh, okay. Um, and the thing is, we just won't hit each other in the head. Oh, okay. Well, uh, where do we hit each other? The, the chest, the body. Oh, okay. Because the head is the money maker. Uh, uh, for that's both what I think. Exactly. Yeah, you know, we don't want to get concussed.
1: Right. So I do sometimes have this feeling of like um, I don't want to get hit, and I don't really want to hit anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody. But I do kind of. I think. Now, I might be wrong, but I think I can move pretty fast, and I think I'm mm-hmm. pretty coordinated. I used to play tennis, and I used to actually beat my opponents not by hitting the ball very hard, but by making really, you know, angular shots just over the net and stuff. And I had one tennis partner who got so upset because he could hit the ball a lot harder than me, and he was in a lot of ways a better player. But I could just put it over the net or put it behind him or whatever. And so it was it was out of cunning that I managed to get a slight advantage. Yeah. So here I am thinking. I would like to see what it's like even though it's not yeah okay so yes I admit to all that here's what I want to say I think my uh, ability to humanize the psychopathic serial killer only goes up to a point where I run into a wall and then I think this is unintelligible and uh, I I kind of don't even want to understand it because it's just like it's a it's a road into some kind of awful hellish reality that's I don't even want to know it's that's the terrifying thing it's like I almost don't want to know what's going on in the mind of this person because it seems unthinkable it's really unthinkable well let
0: let me flip it on its head is this is this scenario possible that I'm the monster that my ability to enjoy causing suffering is just much worse than anybody else's or most people and that I could go like like I could be like I, I I recorded a podcast and I said that I could sympathize with someone who cut off people's fingers and made <laughs> designs out of them. Yeah. So it made me a little worried. Because Taylor said he doesn't even like to punch people. And here I did. I admitted in front of a, an audience of people. So, so I, I said to my wife, I'm a little concerned about that. And she said, you did what? That's not normal. Why don't you go to the doctor and have it checked out? Uh-huh. So then they give me some sort of instrument. And that could be either a questionnaire or a brain scan. Uh-huh. And then they say, you know what? They actually do this, actually. That's really sick, Eric. Yeah. You are, in fact, a monster. Well, nobody else looks at the world that way except for very sick individuals who are um, in mental hospitals. uh Could I learn that I am a monster? It's Is that a a, a philosophically coherent possibility? Well, it's not
1: altogether impossible because there are tests they do. And again, I didn't look this up to get the details. But they can do a kind of brain scan on people while they show them images that are, for most people, very upsetting. Um Violence, remember this is in the Ronson book where he talks about these mm. studies they do they They test your reaction, your sort of visceral affective reaction, heartbeat, respiration, maybe perspiration, all these kinds of things to showing you these things and some people have zero reaction, zero kind of immediate affective or emotional reaction to these really terrifying or violent or kind of horrifying things. most people i don 't know what the percentage is, but most people will be upset by them in a a somehow measurable way. Now, I don't think this is really sophisticated or, or settled science by any means. This is just some kind of indication of differences that people have about immediate emotional reactions, emotional reactions to violence or bloodshed or something like that. Not everybody who lacks this immediate response has a history of violence. But they may be able to do things and tolerate some things that most of us would find very upsetting and couldn't actually handle. So but, you, you, but suppose it, they found out that about you and they said, "Hey, you're a psychopath." What do you know? I think what that would mean is that knowing that somebody's a psychopath doesn't tell us as much about them as we thought it did.
0: Right. But what about this possibility? Because that 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 has sort of deflated it, and it, what it it turns out that in your example, it is. Ability to look at horrifying images and not get upset. Yeah. Um, But that's not the interesting thing that worries me. Yeah, What worries me is if people said, we all share a deep emotional connection, and you don't, Eric. So in some deep level, you're missing out on a level of human interaction and human uh, sharing, which everybody else except for weirdos shares. Is that a coherent thing to worry
1: about? I think your testimony on that point would be very valuable, be very essential, because if this came as a surprise to you and you thought, well, I thought I did share this emotional connection with people because I'm very moved by sad stories and I have relationships with other people and I'm concerned about their welfare and, and this is news to me because I thought I had this, then I think there'd be no reason to take that diagnosis very seriously. But again, with psychopaths, I think... My understanding is often it doesn't come as very surprising to them because they'll say, "Yeah, I, you know, I don't really care about what other people think or feel." Or, they don't care. Or, yeah, I mean, in other words, I think it's it's important to you don't we don't have to be behaviorists to acknowledge that a lot of, if not all, of our mental lives are interwoven. Uh, with our actual manifest behaviors that other people have access to, so um, it's not like the mind and the body and behavior can be, can come completely apart in different domains. I think I think if there's a lot of behavioral evidence. broadly construed that this person actually has empathy and is sympathetic and has real concerns for other people's welfare and acts like it and structures their life around that then they're not a psychopath uh... because
0: I've had people come to me and say Eric I want you to know that they I mean they're talking about themselves they want me to know that they're autistic Uh and I'm like are you sure (laughs) because we've had many conversations about my emotional life and your emotional life for decades Yeah and they're like yeah but i was just pretending i'm a high functioning autistic person yeah and and part of me wanted to say and you know and i don't like to um minimize people's mental health journeys at all so i'm not saying that yeah. but i am trying to kind of puzzle my way through the the emotional riddle which
1: is how could somebody like that ever know they were like that i i i think autism is uh, vastly overdiagnosed and it's being extended such to such an extent that the meaning of it is less and less clear
0: okay let's put that let's put this one off until somebody from the community wants to talk with us because i don't want to say i don't want to say stuff that is Wrong. Well, Blind Boy um, Boat
1: Club announced, a, you know, a, a couple of maybe a year ago or something that he found out he was diagnosed as being autistic. And he thinks this explains all kinds of things about his life. And it may or may not be. But I had your reaction when I heard that. I thought, really? I mean, that. No, you're not. Yeah, it, it didn't sound <laughs> yeah. right to me at all. In in. And yet that's not the reaction you want. If someone says,
0: I'm dyslexic. Yeah. You're not supposed to say, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're just not you're su- trying hard enough. You're supposed to listen. Yeah. yeah. You're supposed to be. Yeah like so if blind boy I, gets comfort from his autism diagnosis i don't want to take no, that away from No it's fine me. in fact i but don't part
1: of me makes wonders if it's real i don't me absolutely no you you're absolutely right to wonder whether it's real i mean i think with mental uh psychological diagnoses it's a really serious question whether any of these are what scientists or philosophers would call natural kinds uh i know somebody who works on philosophy of psychology who's pointing out that if you look at the, the DSM, you know, which is a, a diagnostic statistical manual, which is not supposed to be a taxonomy, but it's supposed to be a guide for diagnosing. But given that the usual formula is seven of the following ten symptoms, it turns out there's like, I don't know, hundreds of ways to have any particular condition since they can overlap. Uh, you can be a narcissist and bipolar in a way that you can't be a giraffe and an alligator at the same time. So they're not right. species- genus distinctions and mm-hmm. given the number of permutations yeah there's hundreds of ways of being bipolar or something like that you know there's so many different combinations it's not very clearly and it's not clearly meant to be a scientific taxonomy but here's what i also think about these things is the more you hear people talk about themselves relative to one of these diagnostic categories i think um if you know the person at all you're learning more about the diagnostic concept than you are about the person Because you know the person, and then you're figuring out, well, does this is this what people mean by autistic? Because if it is, then it means more than what I thought it meant. You know, right, uh, right, and and it's uh, yeah. There's a whole discussion we could have about psychological categories and diagnoses, but um, in the meantime, I thought, yeah, maybe this is helping Blind Boy. Although in the meantime, too, I love his podcast. Any of our listeners, if they're not already listening to the the Blind Boy podcast, should definitely check it out. You should. Um, It's really brilliant. And uh, he's also, I think, more recently been sort of having a counter-reaction to this, which is he's tired of this being the way he has to think about himself. And that's that's a very Mm -hmm. healthy reaction, too. Uh, uh, That said... I think Socrates and Galileo and, um, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of geniuses. Wittgenstein. Yes, just Wittgenstein, Bob Dylan, I think, who are very, very plausible candidates for the way the thing has been described up till now that lead people to think there's some kind of um, hyper-focus... Orientation. That's uh, but who knows? I mean, the more the more it becomes fashionable as a way to understand yourself, the less content it's going to have. We all know that there've always been people who have slightly different kinds of social skills and slightly different kinds of focus and concentration, and and, and this is not news. We didn't need science to tell us this. Right? But, no, that's not news. Yeah. So I'm still kind of trying to get to a
0: deeper level of disquiet. Good, good, about good. This Me too. Yeah, yeah. That's what I want to do. Too. And I'm thinking of. An aphorism from Stanley Cavell, mm. my old teacher from college, mm-hmm. who said, there's nothing more human than the capacity to be horrified at being a human.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, and, and to put it into our monster words, yeah. to be worried that you or your fellow humans are monsters is, in fact, a very human thing. Absolutely. And to flip it around, the failure to understand that you or
1: your fellow humans could be monstrous—is monstrous. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. And this actually reminds me of Hannah Arendt's uh, famous thesis of the banality of evil. And I'll, but I'll preface that by saying—and I think I mentioned this in one of our recent episodes when we were talking to uh, to Fred Armisen—psychologists uh, sometimes say, you know, if you read very much about psychopathy and you think, oh dear, maybe I'm a psychopath, if you're worried about that, you're not one. Or probably not right. one Because yeah that's the human thing Is to worry like you were saying Maybe they'll tell me that I'm a monster And I don't want to be a monster <laughs> I mean I hope I'm not a monster Again if you actually listen to interviews With, with very clear cases Of psychopaths they don't care I mean, to them, this is just throwing around words, and they say, "Fine, call me a psychopath. I don't care. I guess I'm I've heard interviews with some prison inmates who were talking about their diagnosis as a psychopathy, and they're kind of laughing about it and saying, yeah, "I'm a psychopath. That's fine. You know, they don't they don't mind." So there's a shallowness. And then at the psychopath convention, they were like, "Why did you say that? Why did you say that?
0: Because yeah. I say I would hate to be a psychopath because I want to get out of That's here." That's
1: true. Absolutely, of course. Yeah. I mean, if they're clever psychopaths, I mean, he was in prison, so he had nothing more to lose, so he could be honest and. Um Um, Right, right.
0: Maybe he just enjoyed getting a rise out of
1: people. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, the thing about evil, I think, and this is where I think Hannah Arendt was really onto something right, even if she was wrong about Eichmann, which we can devote another episode to if we want to. I don't think she was probably right about Eichmann, but she was wrong about Eichmann, somebody said, because she was so right about so many other people in the bureaucratic machinery of the third reich who were just thought they were doing their jobs and they were absolutely shallow and vacant administrators who were thinking according to rules and really had zero moral understanding of what was going on or what they were doing i think and when i want to go back to the hillside strangler documentary i was seeing when you see shows about killers like that it's the banality of the act which is really chilling it's how meaningless it was. That's what I find very disturbing. So I think the monstrosity is a kind of absence. It's a lack of meaning. It's a lack of empathy and sensitivity. And like maybe Cavell was saying, the sort of capacity to feel horror at things that are normal. Because let me let me also remind us, uh, ourselves and the listeners, that psychopaths are not the only murderers around. There's lots of different reasons people kill each other. Sometimes it's out of jealousy or anger. Sometimes it's out of recklessness. And you know, I mean, well, Greg Abbott is denying uh, water from uh, people in the desert
0: because he thinks it's going to help him become president someday.
1: Yeah, I don't know what psychological label to put on that. That's horrifying. Um, Yeah, maybe that's psychopathy. It's it's evil. It's evil. So I do want to talk about politics. Ah. is it time for a break?
0: Um, just about. Uh, Why don't we take one Let's take a little break And then we'll come back And talk about politics Because I want to think about To what extent we should view Our political enemies as monsters Ah Very good Okay excellent So we'll be right back Did you ever um, see or read the book The Shining by Stephen King? I saw the movie. I didn't read the book. Okay. The movie's, I would say, probably better than the book. I, I think so. So the monster in that is Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson. Yep. And he is a man who was traumatized by his father. His father was a drunk who beat him up. And he's really angry that he hasn't become a famous novelist and he's alone with his wife and kid and he ultimately decides to teach them a lesson and kill both of them now in the book he's possessed by some sort of evil hotel and at some point his psychic son realizes it's not his father anymore it's just the evil magical hotel puppeting his father's body
1: oh i see but
0: i think this is probably a metaphor for the way in which toxic masculinity is passed down from generation to generation Uh uh-huh and any man who beats up his or murders his wife or kid to teach them a lesson is what exactly exactly Do we want to say he's being puppeted by toxic masculinity or he is
1: himself evil? How do we discuss those people? Uh, Well, let me just say one thing. I didn't know you were going to bring this up about the movie. I did read a little bit of Stephen King's comments on the movie he apparently was not happy with the fact that Kubrick had eliminated the literal sort of possession story the ghost story because for Stephen King it really was a haunted house story a ghost story and in the movie it's it. I mean there's plenty of creepy supernatural things going on in the movie uh, he, he, the Jack Nicholson's face ends up on a photograph that's supposed to be from the 1920s at the very end I hope that wasn't I guess that was a spoiler but so it's not that it's all totally naturalized but it's very I think, e- I think
0: anything Thing more than two years old, you can spoil it anyway. Go on. (laughs) Um,
1: So, but the movie, it's much more, it's much easier to read this in psychological terms. And the thing that's horrifying is that it's him. It really is him. And this is your father. So the thing that Stephen King was not happy with uh, about the movie, I think, is part of what makes the movie great and maybe why it's it's a, it's a an improvement on the book. But I do think, you know, going back to what we were saying at the very beginning, the very idea of a monster is the construction of a kind of meaning, which is a defense mechanism to avoid the meaninglessness of what's really horrifying it seems to me this is a similar sort of thing it's not him it's the house ah okay and there's a supernatural or mythical kind of thinking which provides you comfort so that you don't have to face the reality so I think yeah I think it's all these racist tropes that get invoked in wartime you know the enemies a cockroach or an insect or an animal. Right. The Nazis
0: They're, believed that Jews were vampires.
1: Yeah, though believe, I mean, did they? I mean, they said that and because it's They employed a, that rhetoric. They employed that rhetoric and it's an image and it motivates people and it creates terror, but it also imbues a certain kind of in a way, let me, I don't want to say it's meaningless, but fact of human sameness. It it conceals that with a myth of uh, of an exotic opposition sort of devil figure, and that has psychological and political motivations and uh, functions. So I think it's very dangerous to invoke these categories, and I think it's actually probably a mistake even with serial killers to use this language. I think uh, it's it's an evasion. So how
0: would you have us understand real life Jack Torrance? Because there are real life, Jack oh, sure. says. in says. Mm. Uh, the philosopher Kate Mann has a book, Down Girl. Yeah. And she starts off just by talking about the huge amount of femicide, the huge numbers of women who are murdered and strangled by their lovers mm. or husbands. Yeah. yeah, And so here's a bunch of people who are the men, the murderous men, the femicidal men, are like... Jack Nicholson in The Shining,
1: how should we think about them? Now, let me just, before taking that on, let me just get clear about Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining. He's not a psychopath, right? I mean, he's a puppet that's being inhabited by the spirit of yeah, the house. Yeah, let's not,
0: let's not worry about the
1: the philosophical issue of people being possessed by evil hotels, because I don't think that's real. No, 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 of course, but I'm trying to get a sense of what, what we should even think about a real-life version of that. The real-life
0: version I would like to
1: be, talk about is a man who
0: who's so full of rage, right, right. he's so full of toxic rage, right. that he commits horrific acts of violence against women and children. Right. That's, wh- that's what I want to okay. talk Okay, so about. this is not the serial and killer who's Not sort of, someone possessed by a magic hotel. Oh,
1: or the serial killer who goes around and picks victims at random and chops them up and is just no, a hobby. No, no, the person
0: yeah. who, yeah. like, is, is, like... Motivated, yeah. Motivated
1: by resentment expressing
0: and, a yeah. desire for control and resentment. Right. Over his intimate partner. And it initially, very much like, I love you, baby. I love you. I need you. And then uh, you humiliated me. I came home right. and the dinner wasn't cooked. You humiliated me and then performs an act of violence, you know, punches this woman. And then apologizes and says, that wasn't me. I'm so sorry. I love you. I'm never going to do that again. And then does it again and ultimately murders her like this happens every day. And
1: what Kate Mann is really right about, I think, in that book is to say that it's not adequate to invoke a very traditional sort of humanist argument that this kinds of violence are results of dehumanization. Um, What's the traditional humanist argument and the dehumanization? Right. So the humanist argument is something like um, what might be necessary for people to really commit atrocious acts of violence or crime is that is that they do what we were talking about a second ago, which is uh, dehumanize their enemies or their victims by saying they're animals, they're vampires, they're insects or whatever, that this is always a feature of, uh, of violence, people capable of violence thanks to mechanisms like that and i think she's got a very good point that there's there's other cases in which that doesn't seem to be going on that you you can kill your enemy because you think they are sneaky and aggressive or they're after your land or they're taking your jobs or they deserve it or the
0: the toxic man And this is a sort of chilling part of The Shining,
1: is he's killing his wife to teach her a lesson. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And you don't teach a lesson to an alligator. Exactly. And I think that's why, especially in these cases of misogynistic violence, men are teaching women a lesson or setting them straight or putting them back in their place. I mean, you have to be dealing with a human victim for that to be the nature and motivation for the violence. So... Um, by the way, everybody, yeah.
0: read Down Girl by Kate Mann if you haven't. It's great, and her basic thesis is that because she she solved a puzzle for me because I would had often heard misogynists say, "I don't hate women, I love women," uh-huh. and I was like, "Well, that's, <laughs> there's something right about that," uh-huh. um, and how can that be true? And she said because misogyny is a series of commands; it's a police structure. So what misogyny is, is saying, I love women when they do what I require them to do, and then I hate them if they don't. Um, and that's, I think, a really good use of
1: philosophy in the real world. I I, I thought it was spectacular. I think it's um, really good, too. And I think, actually, it, her objections to the humanist argument, like that the common humanity is what sort of protects us from this kind of violence, doesn't seem like it applies in these cases. But she's also right, I think, to think in the cases of Uh, racism there's racist ideologies that lock people into certain expectations and inclinations that uh, that allow them to perpetrate terrible acts of violence against like you were saying against jews or insects or or vampires or whatever is
0: this is this the answer to our terrifying question the terrifying question was are there monsters among us and the answer seems to be no but humans are more monstrous than you might think.
1: That's a good answer. One thing I wanted to add though before before we wrap up uh yes. is that uh it's not that if we eliminate the ideological structures and the social structures that um perpetuate misogyny and she's right I think to think of misogyny as a systemic way of treating women, rather than as an internal private attitude of like, do you like women or do you hate women? It's not going to be enough to have this ideological reorientation. And in fact, I think what's going to allow people to get along with each other and really respect each other is the kind of familiarity that you get when you actually know them and recognize their common humanity. Is just a little footnote to the Kate Mann book, which I really like and it's brilliant. But I do think there's more to be said for the humanist view that what often gets us out of these patterns of violence, in addition to the restructuring the ideologies, is something like just ordinary familiarity and shared circumstance so that you can empathize with people's struggles and pains and attitudes and so on. And I think people get along with each other, you know, pretty well. (laughs) Uh, When you consider that, you know, these uh, stadiums hold 100,000 people, everybody can show up for a basketball game and nobody gets killed you know generally speaking there's there may be a right. few scuffles now, now, i just That's don't want to be
0: i don't want to be job's comforter here no, no. with our glass half full no. because if somebody's listening um from a domestic violence shelter yeah. and she was just strangled last night yeah. i don't think she's going to find much, much comfort Fair enough. in your soccer stadium example Fair enough. and yeah. and it makes me wonder whether like you know the this is terrifying questions and how not to be terrified by them i do think well you don't want to be terrified because that to me suggests a level of panic where you can't act effectively but there might be people who should wake up a little who who should could serve to be a little more aware of the capacity of humans to be monstrous and and if that I hope that doesn't terrify them in the sense that it makes them too you know frightened to do anything but maybe some degree of
1: awareness about the capacity for human sure. evil is something that's good. Oh absolutely I totally agree. Um, And I would just add that people who've been subject to that kind of violence, what they absolutely need is to find a place where they're safe and where there's people who care about them and can support them. And you find communities of support. And human beings are very good at that. And I, I think we have to kind of hope this is true, even though I think there's plenty of evidence for it that most people have a kind of decency that comes from recognizing their common humanity and they can empathize at a at a level of feeling. And let me just end, I mean, this line of thought with this, that I think there's a lot more going on at the level of intuitive feeling of empathy that creates a kind of decent culture, society. Uh, and that's just a different project from at the ideological level. Mm-hmm. I think the ideolo- ideological level is very important and I think there's this fact of basic human decency and compassion, which you find in most people with some really terrifying exceptions. And it's important to keep that in view. It is important to keep it in view. Okay, well, thank you. Monsters. Monsters. Monsters everywhere. Let me, let's, if we're going to wind this up, uh, let me say this. I think we have to be very attuned to what you might call the monstrous fact that there are some people around who don't have this recognition of the monstrosity of uh <laughs> human beings um but to pin the label of monster on somebody i think is a very dangerous move because precisely because you're not seeing the the humanity in their capacity to be inhuman
0: yes and once you pin the label of monster on them uh you then Send them off to some sort of processing plant, and you—you, you you know—it's very difficult to get people out of the processing plant once they are in it. Yeah,
1: that's right. So, um, uh, yeah, it's very hard to know where to draw the line. I, um, yeah,
0: Uh, it's hard. I and I—we're speechless. We're (laughs) speechless, and that's appropriate.
1: Here's here's one more thing. I think when you were saying, what should we think of people like the Jack Nicholson character in The Shining? I I don't know how to put this in a way that's going to sound quite right, but what I want to say is there's something deeply uninteresting about most acts of violence. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way, if we can resist glamorizing them and romanticizing them and thinking that there's something enigmatic and mysterious and fascinating about them, this was Hannah Arendt's point, that you're... You're dressing up evil as something fascinating and deep, and it almost never is. It's almost always ugly, banal, stupid, boring, and sickening. And maybe keeping that in mind will sort of keep you from, in a way, unintentionally glamorizing the violence, so that you can figure out how to dismantle it and prevent it. Right. And and we get rid of do it. We should
0: do one. We should
1: do one where we figure out how to glamorize. Goodness. Exactly right. The, the good, because the good is deep and fascinating, and yeah. and enigmatic. And yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. It's evil that's boring and shallow and not interesting. And I think yeah. viewing it as not interesting may be a healthy step towards figuring out how to dismantle the structures that perpetuate it, and not feeling like we're losing something interesting about human life.
0: Yeah. So so shut up, Tolstoy. <laughs> it's not true that happy families are all the same. Happy families can be yes. fascinatingly different.
1: I think in a way he got it exactly backwards, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: What a jerk. Okay, that was great.
1: <laughs> okay, good. Thank you all okay. for listening. Th- this was a good one. And Thanks for listening. We will see you again soon or hear you again soon, or at least you'll hear us. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye. podcast is created by eric kaplan and taylor carmen it's produced by amanda eberhardt the music and editing is by me taylor carmen and our cover art illustration is the work of tony millionaire you can find us on facebook instagram and tiktok as terrifying questions